Welcome to Fort Knox, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I am your host, John Fort of CNBC, and this week we're going to do a little something different. It's summer, got some weeks off coming, some vacation time, and there's no better time to dig back through the archives and look at some of my favorite moments from Fort Knox. Now, as you might know, at this point, we've been on this journey for uh, more than two and a half years conversations with all kinds of people. For this week, I wanted to dig out three in particular that really struck me as just great, great stories. Three people here. First up, Julie Sweet. Uh, Julie Sweet today leads the North American business at Accenture, a global consulting giant. They employ more than 400,000 people, uh, produced more than $32 billion in sales a couple of years back. Um, and Sweet's territory made up almost exactly half of that total. Now, uh, what's interesting about Julie is she was a lawyer coming in, not uh, a consultant all the way up through her career. And uh, that led her to be the top lawyer at Accenture before she got the job that she has now. The story she tells for Fort Knox, though, she was a high school sophomore with the gift of gab, entering debate and speech competitions for prize money. And there was one in particular she attended with her dad and, and got a bit of advice, I don't know, perspective from him that shifted the way she thought about things. That conversation is first. Take a listen. Okay, well, you're going to think this is kind of an interesting memory, but um, when my dad was, uh, when I was in high school, I would go to speech, speech contests. I, I'd figured out that like the Rotary Club and the Lions Club would have these contests and you could make money and we needed money for college. And mm. so my, my mom and dad flipped a coin. My mother went to the debate tournaments, which was a lot of work. And my father said, I'll take the, you know, the, the speech contest. And so my sophomore year in high school, we went to one at the Lions Club. And I was in the final round. And I lost to this other young woman. And on my way home, I was kind of complaining to my dad because she had been very cutesy, and I've, I've never been cutesy. <laughs> she was the daughter of one of the senior members of the Lions Club. My father was not a member of the Lions Club. He painted cars for a living. You know, we, we, we drove up in the VW Bug, right? <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, my dad had one sports coat, right? It was very different. And my father said to me, he said, you know, you... You have to be so much better than everyone else that it doesn't matter about connections. It doesn't matter who you're the daughter of. And you weren't. And so, like, essentially stop whining, <laughs> right? And, and it was one of those things where it, it definitely, like, look, you know, I'm, I'm almost 50 and I'm still talking about it, right? Now, it's interesting that over time you learn that, in fact, there are some unfair situations. Like, mm -hmm. you can prepare and work, and, you know, I've certainly seen that in the diversity realm. But that sort of lesson where my dad was willing to be honest with me that, you know, I was good, but I wasn't so good that it was just completely hands down. And if that's what I want, that's what I aspire to be, I just have to work really, really hard. That's interesting. That's so. similar to the advice that a lot of black mothers give their sons oh, really? and daughters about you have to work twice as hard to be seen as being, you know, the idea that leave, if you leave no doubt on who's the best, then 
Right. Then, then, then at least you have nothing to regret. Right. Right. And uh, so it's, it really definitely affected me. And it also, I, he didn't do it in a way that he didn't show resentment. Hmm. Right. He just said, you got to be that good. In that right. situation or ever? Um, ever. Like he never, he didn't act like, look, yeah, oh, poor us. I'm the painter. I'm this or that. He, he was very matter of fact. And so that also, you know, it's just like, that's a reality. You don't come from, <laughs> it's like when I used to ask for something and he'd say, you know, like I'd want to buy something and he'd be like, born into the wrong family, you know, <laughs> and of course it would drive me crazy. But, uh, but I think it was a good, it was good for me to really just focus on what could I control and not be upset, you know, and he didn't allow me to blame my loss on things that sure contributed to it, but, you know. I really enjoy that. Not, not only did it personally resonate with me and the kind of things that my parents told me growing up, but it's just so interesting to me the way that failures, difficulties, losses get framed in our minds and then how that influences the way we look at problems going forward. Okay, so next up, Tom Siebel. This guy is uh, a multi-billionaire because uh, he sold a company Siebel Systems to Oracle for uh, about $6 billion years back. But that's not what this story is about. Uh, since then, Tom has started another company, C3IoT, that's really in this uh, Internet of Things era. It's software that ties the whole system together. I sat down with him, and he told me a story about an event, a tragedy, that most definitely changed his life, but also speaks to his literal never-say-die attitude about problems. It involves an elephant, a safari, and a, a fight for his life. Here's Tom Siebel. And one of the uh, amenities that they featured at this uh, facility was, which was kind of a private encampment, um, was a walking safari. So I asked the guide, if we could take a walking safari tomorrow. And he said, no problem, Mr. Siebel. Meet me for breakfast at 6.30. And I don't know if you've ever been to the Serengeti, but it's no. basically high desert, and it's it, 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 there's no relief, really no trees, no hills, some scrubs, and some occasional mud hill, holes where the animals congregate. And uh, he explained to me that um, I would be carrying, I was going to carry, I was armed with a Nikon, uh, single-edged reflex <laughs> camera. And, I thought you were uh, going to say Bushmaster was with And, and he but. was going to be armed with a uh, double-barrel 470 rifle. Oh, okay. Well, a 470 rifle has a charge about the size of a roll of dimes. And he explained to me that it was very important that if we were charged by an animal that I not run, because if I, run, if I ran, uh, we were going to be hurt. So we walked out at daybreak, and it was uh, not a breath of wind. And we went for about 15 minutes. We came upon a herd of uh, elephant, and there were 15 of them, uh, adults and juveniles, in a stand of trees about 200 meters away, mm. kind of peeling branches away the way they do. And we stood there and watched them in this for about seven minutes. And then all of a sudden, this one matriarch um, a very large female elephant got wind, some other wind must have shifted or something, and she saw us and went back on her haunches, and her trunk went up, and her ears went back, and she bellowed, 
and then all of a sudden focused at us since this elephant starts taking a beeline at us. At, uh, so this is five tons moving at 30 miles an hour. So it'll cover 200 yards pretty quickly. Yeah. And so standing in front of me is the guide with his loaded double barrel 470 rifle. And the elephant comes up, you know, 150 yards, 100 yards. Guy doesn't shoot. 80 yards, 70 yards, 60 yards. Dies. Guy doesn't shoot. You know, 40 yards, 30 yards, 20 yards. About this time, it's starting to get a bit concerning. Yeah. And the guy doesn't shoot. Well, the guy just shot at 10 yards and missed. And an elephant oh. at 10 yards is the size of the wall of this conference room. I don't imagine at 10 yards shooting the elephant would have done much anyway. Well, it would have dropped it in its tracks. I mean, a 470 rifle will drop an elephant in its tracks yeah. at 100 yards. And uh, anyhow, the elephant came up and then took the guide and just curled the guide about, I would say, almost 15 yards, just tossed him. Wow. And then ran up and stopped in front of me. And so meanwhile, I'm not running. You're not going to outrun it into one of these things anyway. They could run at 30 miles an hour. And stopped... 18 inches from my face. This is five tons of elephant. And to this minute, I can see it. I can smell it. I can see the tusk, the hair follicle, the, the hoof, uh, the eyeball. And uh, so I'm standing my ground, and it was like, the, you know, we had a little mental exchange. I was like, okay, what are we going to do now? <laughs> and then the how, I, mean, I know it probably seems like five minutes, but how long was that pause, you think? Maybe three seconds. Three seconds. And it's very surreal because you don't really have a place in your brain to put an elephant, okay? No, I mean, there's, there's not a, you know, there's no context for that. So you're off in a, it's a very surreal space and things move very, very slowly. And then the elephant proceeds to knock me to the ground and roll me and punch me. And I took a tusk through one leg Oof. and the elephant stepped on my other leg and my foot came off. And meanwhile, I'm just kind of holding my head while I'm being rolled and pushed and, 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 and basically attacked by this raging elephant, which was, um, you know, not my best day. And, uh, the, you know, you can imagine the pain of being, you know, impaled by an elephant's tusk. I or can't. Having your, you know... Leg stepped on, and literally you your my foot, foot came, came, came off. off my leg. Yeah, and uh, it was still hanging on. But when we were done by, say, one artery, two tendons, and a flap of skin, um, but you know, the hits were almost unimaginably painful, unimaginably painful. And I uh, remember thinking to myself, you know, dear God, make this stop. And I didn't really care how it stopped. I just couldn't do it anymore. It really hurt. Look up. Dust has settled, elephant's gone. And uh, I'm critically injured. I look over, and the guide is now about 18 yards away because I've been pushed around a little bit, you know, lying absolutely still, prone, on top of a loaded double-barrel 470 rifle. So he knew I was dead, and he didn't want the same fate. And he could have gotten off seven rounds in this period of time. Mm. So then they uh, surrounded me. He got on a radio. They surrounded me by a, hurt, by a number of trucks so that no more animals got in. And I lay there for uh, three and a half hours in the Serengeti with my one leg flayed open, my other leg, the foot detached. And um, went from there to a pickup truck, pickup truck to a back of a Cessna, Cessna to Nairobi, had surgery in Nairobi. You want to be scared? <laughs> Have surgery in Nairobi. And that airlifted. You, that, you drew the long straw and got a good doctor in Nairobi? I survived. And uh, did get a blood transfusion. And uh, arrived. Did not get a blood did transfusion. Did not get it. Right. Because of a mistake, actually. 
And um, they then I airlifted to San Jose, California, 20-hour flight. They had 10 hours of morphine. So the last 10 hours, were, I took maybe all the morphine in Kenya uh, with me. And uh, it was uh, the last 10 hours were pretty long. And the next three years, I had 19 reconstructive surgeries. Um, at one point, I weighed 121 pounds. I was in an electric wheelchair, mm. uh, kind of like a paraplegic. Yeah. And then three years later, I walked. And uh, now I'm back 100%. Anyway, this is my leg. There's, you know, there's nothing artificial about it. And uh, it just took a lot of surgeries to get it right. And I would go visit physicians, and they would explain that they're going to have to remove my leg. And I'd say, okay, you're fired. <laughs> and then I'd go, you know, and I kept going through physicians until somebody, um, I was, you know, persistent about it. And uh, I'm very fortunate. What did the physician say where you stopped and said, okay? this one I can work with? Well, it was, uh, I had a uh, device on my leg to hold it together. It's called the Lizaroff fixator. It's an external fixator. It's extremely painful. Mm. It has like, you know, three eighty-inch lag, lag bolts. That's the thing I've tibia. seen on yeah. TV and the movies. Yeah, it looks like a cage sort yeah, of looks with like a various. Cage. wires going through your joints, lag bolts going into your tibia. Yeah. I mean, it really, it hurts every second of every minute up to every 24 hours of a day. And I had six of those installed. And they're made by a company called Smith & Nephew uh, in Memphis, and it's called a Taylor Spatial Frame. It was invented by some crazy guy in Siberia by the name of Elizaroff. And, um, and yeah, I called at one point after a year and a half of a lot of pain, I called the product manager for Smith & Nephew in Memphis. And uh, they put me in touch with Maggie, who was the product manager. And I said, Maggie, I know you don't usually talk to people like me, but I've been a customer of yours for some time. And I would like to, I'd like you to like, tell me who has more experience installing these than anybody in the world. And I said, I don't really care where. You know, Leningrad, Rio, London, New York. It's all good. Just tell me where to go. Yeah. And she said, okay, Mr. Siebel, let me look into it and get back to you. I never expected her to call back. And then the next day she calls back and I pick up the phone and it's Maggie from Smith and Matthew in Memphis. And Maggie says, well, Mr. Siebel, I've researched it. And the fact is that the two people with the most experience of anybody in the world in installing these devices are in San Francisco. Huh. And so 22 miles down the road. Yeah. And so I went to this doctor in San Francisco and he looked at it and he unfortunately said, we have to redo the whole project because it's all been incorrectly installed. But he did... Uh, redo the whole project, and today I walk, I jump, I kiteboard, I lift weights, I do, you know, uh, I do, uh, you know, very uh, aggressive, uh, extreme competitive sailing, and I'm in, you know, pretty good shape. I still talk to Tom, of course. Uh, we have him on CNBC's Squawk Alley now and then. I just love the fact that the guy is always willing to really say what he thinks, and what he thinks is absolutely steeped in decades of knowledge of business and tech. And I tell you what, I went to visit him at C3IoT's offices uh, in Redward Shores, right near Oracle, and uh, went into his office. He's got a picture, a framed picture of an elephant behind his desk. And he said to me, whenever anybody says to me, you know, I'm going to crush you, you know, you're not going to make it, we're going to destroy you, you just look at that picture because I know what it's really like uh, to get crushed and yet still survive it. Uh, pretty amazing. Now, next up, Troy Carter. Uh, he 
has represented just a crazy number of people around music. Um, Eve, Lady Gaga, um, just some amazing uh, stuff. Megan Trainer, he kind of led her uh, evolution into a, a pop star in kind of an unlikely way. I talked to Troy Carter about his upbringing in West Philadelphia and how he first got into the music business. And believe it or not, he first got into the music business as a young teenager and kind of scrapped his way into the scene at a time when hip-hop was not obviously going to be this major national and international art form, when people were looking at hip-hop artists and hip-hop concerts with uh, even greater suspicion than they are now. Um, I've said enough about it. Here is Troy Carter. I think my, my first interaction with the music business was, was, was buying um, 45s and albums from uh, Goodman's record store around the corner from my grandmother's house. <laughs> and, you know, just and doing house parties. and um, and DJing? I, I did everything from DJing to actually promoting house parties, you know, and I only was the DJ because it was, you would have to pay the DJ, so to save a little money, you know, um, I, I'd do the party myself. So, so I, I was a guy who fell in love with, the, with music culture, mm -hmm. and then... Um, and so then, how old were you? I, I started in the music business when I was about 14, about 14 years old. Now, you were allowed to promote and host house parties at like 14, 15 years old? Well, the, the truth is <laughs> it was a family that lived across the street from me that immigrated from Liberia. And, um, and their, their dad was a, a, a doctor at a hospital down the street. Um, and he worked nights. <laughs> and he also had an illegal speakeasy in their basement <laughs> that when after nightclubs were over, uh, they would have this sort of these parties at their house, and a lot of the African community they were you know they were from Liberia, so a lot of the African community in Philly would come to these parties you know after hours. So we cut a deal with my friend's dad that from eight o'clock until midnight we would do our little parties. Uh -huh. We would clean up and then get it ready for his parties that he would have. <laughs> And so we would that we figured out a way to make some money, and that was like my first entrepreneurial uh, 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 business. How much did you make? You know, we would make a few hundred bucks a week. So for you know a, a yeah. fourteen-year-old kid that could <laughs> buy your own, you could buy your own sneakers, you could buy your own clothes in the you early nineties, right? We did. You know, we did well. My, you know, and I didn't have to. Uh, you know, we didn't grow up with any mo you know, no money in my house, so I didn't have to put pressure on my mom. You also got involved with some of the folks in the New York scene. Mm -hmm. How did that? How did you? How did you move up north? Is that part of promoting somebody when you're talking about that coastal regional strategy, or, or what? Yes. So, and um, no, no, none of the big promoters wanted to touch promoting hip hop shows in Philly, and this is pre Live Nation, pre AEG. So. Um, so I put together some of the hip-hop shows in Philly. 
Because what? I, I, because I loved hip hop. No, but why, <laughs> why didn't the big promoters want to do it? Oh, uh, the, the big promoters wouldn't touch it because they didn't understand the culture. So, you know, a lot, of, you know, it was the reputation of, it's you know, people they shooting. end up in violence, right. you know. Um, I really don't understand. This isn't real music. Um, so I think it was a fear of the culture. And uh, by the way, sometimes it did end up in violence and, you know, but, you know, some of the nights that, that we did became, you know, historical nights. You know, so I was I was the first person to bring Jay-Z down to Philadelphia, mm. um, Wu-Tang Clan down to Philadelphia, Man. Notorious B.I.G. Yeah. And I met P. Diddy through bringing B.I.G. down to Philly. To Philly. And, um, and that was kind of sort of my relationship with the New York hip-hop scene. And, um, and I think that was one of the things that took me into, you know, out of like the the farm club into the minor leagues and like and, and kind of moved up from there. Talk to me about the culture in the early 90s and where you as a kid fit into it. Because, I mean, I know there was a lot of black consciousness rap back then. You know, we had sort of been through De La Soul, Jungle Brothers, etc. But also, a lot of the gangster rap was coming in and the culture was trying to, at least I felt, push young kids to act a certain way, to have a certain kind of swagger. You seem kind of like me, <laughs> in a sense, that we wouldn't necessarily be the guys who would be expected to be the promoter of yeah. a hip-hop show. How did you fit your, your perspective and your personality into this growing business that you had going? You know, it's, it, I think coming from the culture um, had a lot to do with it, you know, so... You know, growing up in, um, in in West Philly, it was, you know, we grew up in a tough neighborhood. It was during the crack epidemic. It was, you know, we lost a lot of friends to, and family members to jail and, and gun violence. And, you know, my dad was in jail for murder, you know, from the time I was six to the time I was 18. So it was, I was very familiar with, with, the, the context of some of the music that you, that you just mentioned from a personal perspective. But at the same time, it's like, you know, I grew up in the, in the, in the church. I grew up in, in you, know, you know, being well-read from a lady on my, on my grandmother's block who helped, you know, helped me. She, she was the only house on the block with a library in her house, in the hood. And so she made me read, you know, yeah. so I grew up seven years old reading the local newspapers because she would have me get the newspaper and read certain things to her. 80-year-old, you know, only white woman in our neighborhood. <laughs> so it's, um, so I grew up, it was complex. It, I, I feel like it was a lot of complexities and, and layers to, to who I was from a very young age. So I wasn't afraid of being in a room with certain types of people. Mm -hmm. um, so whether that was the Suge Knights and the Death Row and the Rough Riders and guys like that who I had to do business with, and, and I wasn't intimidated with record executives and studio executives or, you know, Ivy League people who I, who I had to navigate with. So none of it really intimidated me. So I think that had a lot to do with the navigation. You know, and also uh, what I understood was when you looked at the NWA's 
um, who were coming out of Compton, or you were looking at, you know, some of the harder stuff that was coming, Schooly D that was coming out of Philly. Right. You know, these were authentic stories the same way Maya Angelou had uh, authentic stories about the way she grew up. And, you know, so I, th I felt like it was a certain amount of poetry to it mm -hmm. and self-reflection. And also, this was, this was pre-mobile phones. Right. So when yeah. NWA was saying F the police, um, and they were talking about this experience that was happening in Compton, they were speaking about personal things that they experienced through police brutality and police shootings and, uh, and police corruption through the music before people could witness it on their mobile phones. Right, yeah, I mean, before, not only was it before smartphones, it was before cell phones. It was yes. beeper time yes. back then. But so yeah, there were no yeah. witnesses. There were so, no witnesses. So the song it, was the witness. The, the, song, the song was the witness. Uh, so, so, so I think now when people see, you know, these sort of protests, um, like, you know, Kaepernick taking a knee or they're seeing video of people uh, getting gunned down, uh, you, know, you know, while they have their hands in the air or whatever, uh, you know, I think there were there, a lot of that was being told through music, and I, and I don't think people could understand it back then. That's a great point. Troy has uh, gone on to work with John Legend, like I said, Lady Gaga, Megan Trainer. He's also a general partner at a venture capital firm, Cross Culture Ventures. Just into a lot of stuff. Continues to be such an interesting guy. Uh, thanks for taking this throwback trip with me on Fort Knox. Um, you know, it's fun every once in a while just to dig into the archives, go through the crates, find some of this gold. Um, we're going to do it a little bit more this summer as uh, travels and interviews and things like that are, are taking me here and there. Hope you enjoy it. And of course, feel free to drop me a line on Twitter, on LinkedIn. If you have any thoughts about the podcast, past, present, future, um, Take care, and as always, thank you for lending an ear.